Castle, episode number 54. For May 26th, 2009. The Dreaming Wind by Jeffrey Ford. This is Rachel Swirsky, Podcastle's editor. We're doing something interesting with this week's story. As far as I know, it's an escape artist's first. Due to a clerical mix-up on our end, we obtained two narrations for this week's story from two of our favorite narrators, Rajan Khanna and Paul Tevis. Rather than toss one of these narrations onto the trash heap of podcasting, we thought we'd offer you an option. Listen to one or listen to both and compare. It's Choose Your Own Adventure Podcastle. What follows is Rajan Khanna's narration of today's story, The Dreaming Wind, by Jeffrey Ford. To hear the version by Paul Tevis, just download it from our site. The Dreaming Wind was written by Jeffrey Ford. Ford is the author of the novels The Portrait of Mrs. Charbuque and The Girl in the Glass, and the short story collections The Fantasy Writer's Assistant and The Empire of Ice Cream. His latest novel is The Shadow Year, which came out in March 2008 from HarperCollins slash Morrow, and he had a third short story collection published this fall, The Drowned Life from HarperCollins slash Perennial. He blogs at 14theditch.livejournal.com. The Dreaming Wind first appeared in the Ellen Datlow and Terry Windling anthology Coyote Road. This version is narrated by Rajan Khanna, a New York-based science fiction and fantasy writer whose work has appeared in Shimmer magazine. You can find him on the web at rajankana.com. Links in this introduction are available on our website, podcastle.org. Enjoy the story. The Dreaming Wind by Jeffrey Ford Each and every year, in that brief time when summer and autumn share the same bed, the former, sunburned and exhausted, drifting towards sleep, the latter, rousing to the cricket's call and the gentle brush of the first falling leaves against its face. The dreaming wind swept down from somewhere in the distant north, heading to somewhere in the distant south, leaving everywhere in its wake incontrovertible proof of the impossible. Our town, like the others lying directly in the great gale's path, was not exempt from the bizarre changes wrought by its passing. We prepared ourselves as best we could, namely in our hearts and minds, for there was no place to hide from it, even though you might crawl into the crawl space beneath your house and pull a blanket over your head. No manner of boarding windows, stuffing towels beneath the doors, turning out the lights, or jumping in a lead-lined coffin and pulling shut the lid made a wit's worth of difference. Somehow, it always found you and had its crazy way. So it was that each year, often on a deep blue afternoon in late August or early September, some of us noticed the leaves in the trees begin to rustle and heard above, just a whisper at first, the sound of running water. Then we knew to warn the others. The wind, the wind, was the cry throughout the streets of town. And Hank Garrett, the constable, climbed the stairs to the platform on the roof of his house and turned the crank-handle siren to give notice to farmers out in the fields of the valley that the blowing chaos was on its way. The citizens of Lepara scurried home, powerless to effect any protection, but determined to share the burden of strangeness with loved ones and bolster the faith of the young that it wouldn't last forever. In a heartbeat, in an eye blink, the wind was upon us, bending saplings, rattling windows, lifting dust devils in the town square as though it had always been there, howling throughout our lives. Even down in a root cellar, thick oaken door barred above, hiding in the dark, you heard it, 
And once you heard it, you felt it upon your face and the back of your neck, your arms, like some invisible substance gently embracing you in its cocoon. That's when you knew the wind was beginning to dream you. Its name, the dreaming wind, was more indicative than you might at first believe. What is a dream but a state founded enough upon the everyday to be believable to the sleeping mind, and yet also a place wherein anything at all might, and often does, happen? Tomes of wonders, testaments of melancholic horrors wrought by the gale have been recorded, but I'll merely recount some of the things I myself had been privy to in the years I'd witnessed the phenomenon. The human body seemed its favorite plaything, and in reaction to its weird catalyst, I'd seen flesh turn every color in the rainbow, melt and reform into different shapes, so that a head swelled to the size of a pumpkin, or legs stretched to lift their owner above the housetops. Tongues split or turned to knives, and eyes shot flame, swirled like pinwheels, popped, or became mirrors to reflect the thing that I'd become. Once a salamander man with ibis head, once a bronze statue of the moon. In my wedding year, my wife Lida's long hair took on a mind and life of its own, tresses grabbing cups from a cupboard and smashing them upon the floor. Mayor Mirsch ran down Gossen Street the year I was ten, with his rear end upon his shoulders and muffled shouts issuing from the back of his trousers. Eyes slipped from the face and wound up in the palm, and mouths traveled to the kneecap, arms for legs, elbows for feet, a big toe nose, and wiggling index finger ears. Men became green monkeys and donkeys, and dogs took on the heads of cats, whose legs became pot cleaners and tails changed instantly to sausage links with tiny, biting faces at their tips. Once, three generations of a family's females, from little girls to wrinkled matrons, sprouted black feathers and flew, croaking poetry in some foreign language. Pastor Hinch became part pig. Mavis Toft, the schoolmarm, became a chair with a lamp-shaped head, and this, this was not a hundredth of it for there is no way to encompass in language the inexhaustible creative energy and crackpot genius that was the dreaming wind. While our citizens suffered bodily these sea changes, bellowing with fear, crying out in torment at being still themselves inside, but something wholly other outward, the landscape also changed around them. Monumental gusts loosened leaves that flew away from branches to become a school of striped fish, darting, as if with one mind, through the atmosphere and trees turned to rubber, undulating wildly, or became the long necks of giraffes. Clouds slowly fell, wads of a violet, airy confection, and bounced off chimneys, rolled along the ground like giant tumbleweeds. Streets started to life and slithered away. Windows winked. Houses became glass bubbles that burst into thousand-petaled roses with doors and roofs. The grass never remained green. The sky never blue, but any other color and sometimes different consistencies like water, or jam, or once, a golden gas that coalesced our exhalations into the spectral forms of dead relatives who danced the Kambaru in the town square. And all of this was accompanied by a discordant symphony comprised of a myriad of sounds like breaking glass, a tin whistle, a sneeze, a hammer claw ripping nails from green board, the sighs of ancient pachyderms, water swirling down a drain. Chaos and jumblement, the overall discombobulation of reality, the effect lasted two or three hours, and then, as quickly as it came, it went. The force of the gale decreased incrementally, and as it did, so did its insane changes. People slowly began to reform into themselves as they'd been before the wind. The streets slunk guiltily back to their normal places, the houses reachieved their househood, 
The clouds blanched to their original puffy white and ascended as slowly as they'd fallen. By night, the wind had moved on to disrupt the lives of the good citizens and towns to the south of Lepara. Some might ask, well, why did your ancestors stay in that spot and not move after they saw it was a yearly event? The answer was simple. Come to Lepara and see for yourself that it's the most beautiful spot in the world. Wide blue lakes, deep green forests teeming with game, and farmland of rich, wormy soil. Besides, to escape the wind's course, one would have had to move to the west, which was desert, or to the east, where lay the ocean. Hearing this, some might say, well, all's well that ends well, and once the wind had passed, all was guaranteed to return to its former state. Yes and no. What I mean is most times this was true, and besides the upset of having yourself stretched or shrunk or turned temporarily into a nightmarish creature for a few hours, the entire rest of the year was very good living. Remember, I said most of the time. There were instances, exceedingly rare, mind you, wherein the dreaming wind's mischief remained behind after it had blown south. There was an old oak tree at the edge of town that never lost its ability to, at midsummer, bear a strange yellow fruit, the fragile consistency of fine china and the size of a honeydew melon, that upon ripening, fell off, broke against the ground, and hatched small blue bats that lived for two weeks and feasted upon field mice. And Grandmother Young's talking parrot, Colonel Pudding, once touched by the fickle finger of the wind, had its head replaced with that of her great-granddaughter's baby doll, a cute little bisque visage whose blue glass eyes had lids that winked and closed when it lay down. The bird still spoke, but prefaced every screeching utterance with a breathy mechanical rendition of the word Mama. Perhaps the parrot was somewhat put out, but no terrible harm was done in these two incidents. Still, the possibility of unremitting permanence represented by their changes stayed alive in the minds of the citizens of Lepara, its threat continuously resurfacing and growing to monstrous proportions in all imaginations as each summer neared its end. It was one thing to be a goat-headed clown with feather-duster arms and carrot legs for a few hours, but to remain in that condition for a lifetime was something else entirely. The dreaming wind was playful, it was insane, it was chaotic, and it could be dangerous. Little did any of us suspect for generations past, and for most of my long life, that it could be anything else. Then a few years ago, the strange wind did something so unusual it shocked even us white-haired veterans of its mad work. It was nearing the end of a long, lazy summer, memorable for its blue days and cool nights, and the leaves were beginning to curl on the elm trees. The first few early crickets were beginning to chirp their winter's tail. Each of us, in our own particular way, was stealing ourselves for the yearly onslaught of the mischievous event, offering up prayers to God or reassuring ourselves by reassuring others that as certain as the wind would come, it would pass, and we would again enjoy the normal pleasures of life in Lepara. Constable Garrett did as he had always done, and chose three reliable children, paying them a dime a day to go to the edge of the forest and listen intently for a few hours after school for the sound of water running through the treetops. Everywhere, families made plans as to where they would meet up when the event occurred, what room they would weather the storm in, what songs they would sing together to quell their collective fear. The end of August came and went without incident, and the delay heightened the apprehension of the arrival of the dreaming wind. We older folks reminded the younger that it was known to have come as late as the middle of the second week in September, and that it was to be remembered that the wind could not be dictated to, but had a definite mind of its own. During these days, every curtain lifting in a breeze, every gust dispersing the gossamer seed of a dandelion skeleton, 
caused blood pressures to rise and neck hairs to stand on end. By the middle of the first week in September, the alarm had been falsely raised four times, and Constable Garrett, whose gamey knee was beginning to bother him from the long climbs to his roof, jokingly said he might just as well set out a sleeping bag up there. By the end of the second week in September, nerves were frayed, tempers flared, and children cried for no reason. The aura of anxiety produced by the anticipation of the wind had begun to make Lepara a little mad even before its arrival. Miss Toth, standing in front of her class one day, could not remember for the life of her what six divided by two was no matter how many times she tapped her ruler against a blackboard. She had to have Peggy Frouche, one of the older girls, run across the square to the apothecary shop to inquire as to the answer to the problem. Beck Harbeth, the apothecary, couldn't just then help out even though he knew the answer was three, for he had absent-mindedly filled a prescription for Grandmother Young with a bottle full of laxative pills instead of the usual heart medicine and had to brush past Peg and chase the old woman down the street. In his pursuit, he collided with Mildred Johnson, who was riding her chicken eggs to the market on the front of her bike. Sitting in the road, amidst the cracked shell and splattered yoke debris of their sudden meeting, Harbeth apologized to Mildred for the accident, and she merely replied in a loud, disgusted tone, Don't worry, Beck. It's all the fault of the damn wind. Grandmother Young was only a few paces ahead of the collision of the apothecary and the egg woman, and because her hearing was weak, she never noticed a thing, but Colonel Pudding, who was riding his usual perch atop the left shoulder of his owner, did. He lit into the sky, carrying with him the last phrase he'd heard, which was, The damn wind! and as was his practice when he heard a phrase that caught his fancy, began screeching this alarm in the mimicked voice of she who had uttered it. Constable Garrett, sitting in his office with the window open, heard someone cry, Mama, the damn wind! Sighed, slowly rose from his chair, and started for a fifth time up the steps toward his roof. And so it went, a comedy of errors caused by troubled minds, but no one was laughing. Things got worse and worse until the start of October when the last squadrons of southbound geese passed overhead. The collective worriment of the citizens of Lepara reached a crescendo, nerves snarling like balls of twine in the paws of kittens, and then all fell into a kind of blank exhaustion. Still the wind had not come. A few weeks later, when the first snow fell, blowing down from the north on a mundane autumnal gale, we knew for certain that the dreaming wind had done something undreamt of, the realization came to all of us all at once that our strange visitor from the north wasn't coming, and in that instant we all froze for a moment, wondering what would become of us. The sky grew overcast and stayed that muskrat gray for days on end. The temperature dropped to a bitter low, and the lake froze over as if the absence of the wind had plunged the world itself into a sodden depression. Cows gave half their normal measure of milk. Roosters didn't bother signaling the dawn. Dogs howled at noon, and cats were too weary to chase the mice that invaded Lepara's houses. The citizens, who had always surmised that the elimination of the dreaming wind would fill them with a sense of relief that might border on a kind of spiritual rebirth, now went about their daily tasks as if in mourning. Woven in with the gloom was a pervasive sense of guilt, as if we were being punished for not having appreciated the uniqueness of the blowing insanity when it was upon us. The winter, blanketed in snow and set fast in ice, presented in its seemingly static freeze the very opposite of change. Grandmother Young took to her sickbed, complaining she no longer had the energy to go on. Colonel Pudding was beside himself with concern for his owner, 
and stayed all day in her room with her, pacing back and forth along the headboard of the bed, his fixed fast bisque lips repeatedly murmuring the word, Mama. Constable Garrett's bad knee was now worse than ever, or so he claimed, and instead of going out on his daily rounds making sure the town was safe, he stayed at his office desk, playing endless rounds of solitaire and losing. Pastor Hinch preached a sermon one Sunday in the midst of Lepara's rigor mortis that exhorted all of the town's citizens to wake up and effect their own changes. But when it came time for his congregation to answer him in a prayer, two-thirds of the response he received was unbridled snoring. Lida and I sat at the kitchen table, sipping tea, staring just past each other, each of us waiting for the other to begin a conversation and listening to the wind that was not a dreaming wind howl outside the door. Eventually, with the spring thaw, things picked up somewhat as people returned to the act of living. There was a rote, joyless humdrummery to it, though. All seemed drained of interest and beauty. I think it was actually Beck Harbeth, the apothecary, who first mentioned to a customer that he'd noticed he no longer dreamed at night. The customer thought for a moment, and then nodded, and said that he also could not remember having dreamed since the end of the summer. This observation made the rounds for a week or two, was discussed in all circles and agreed upon. Eventually, Mayor James Mearsh III called an emergency town meeting, the topic of which would be the epidemic of dreamless sleep. It was to be held in the town hall on the following Thursday evening at 7 o'clock p.m. The meeting never took place, because in the intervening time between when the mayor set the date and agenda for that Thursday, many people began to realize, now that they were concentrating on the matter, that in fact they were dreaming. What it was, as articulated by Beck Harbutt himself, the one who started it all, is that nothing unusual was happening in their dreams. The dreams that were dreamt in the days following the failure of the wind were of a most pedestrian nature. Eating breakfast, walking to work, reading yesterday's newspaper, making the bed. There were no chimerical creatures or outlandish happenings to be found in the land of sleep anymore. The second reason the meeting was canceled was that Grandmother Young passed away on the Tuesday prior to the day of the meeting, and although she had grown very frail of recent years, and we knew the end for her was soon in the offing, the entire town was saddened by her passing. She was Lapar's oldest citizen, 125 years, and we all loved her. True to her no-nonsense approach to life, her last words spoken to my wife, who, along with a group of other neighbors, were taking shifts watching over her in her final hours, were... Death has got to be less dull than Lapara these days. Her funeral was as grand as we could muster in our downtrodden condition, and the mayor allocated funds so that a special monument could be erected to her in the town square. As her coffin was lowered into the ground, Colonel Pudding, who was present at the event, sitting on a perch we'd positioned near the grave for him, shed baby doll tears and announced his one-word eulogy, Mama. Then he spread his wings, took off into the sky, and flew off out of sight. The days passed into summer, and we dreamt our dreams of eating peas and clipping our toenails. It seemed nothing would break the ho-hum spell that had settled upon the town. We sleepwalked through the hours and greeted each other with half-nods and feeble grins. Not even the big fleecy clouds that passed in the blue sky took on the shapes of dragons or pirate ships as they had once upon a time. Just when the stasis became almost intolerable, something happened one night. It wasn't much, but we glommed onto it like ants on a twig swept down river. Mildred Johnson was sitting up late, reading a new book she'd recently acquired concerning the egg-laying habits of yellow hens. 
Her husband had already gone to bed, as had her daughter Jessica. The reading wasn't the most exciting, and she dozed off in her chair. Some time later, she woke very suddenly to the sound of low murmuring coming from her daughter's room. She got up and went to the half-open door of the bedroom to check that all was fine, but when she peeked in, she saw, in a shaft of moonlight that bathed the scene, something moving on the bed next to Jessica's pillow. Her first thought that it was a rat, and she screamed. The thing looked up, startled, and in that moment, before it flew out the window, she saw the smooth, fixed, baby doll expression of Colonel Pudding. The parrot's return and the unusual particulars of the sighting could not exactly be classified as bizarre, but there was enough of an oddness to it to engender a mild titillation of the populace. Where had the bird been hiding since the funeral? What was its midnight message? Was it simply lost and had wandered in the open window, or was there some deeper purpose to its actions? These were some of the questions that set off a spark or two in the otherwise dimmed minds of Lepara. As speculation grew, more reports of Colonel Pudding visiting the rooms of the town's sleeping children came to the fore. It was advised by the pastor at Sunday Mass that all windows of youngsters' bedrooms be kept closed at night, and the congregation nodded, but just the opposite was practiced, seeing as how parents and children alike all secretly wanted to be involved in the mystery. Beyond his nighttime visits, the parrot began to be spotted also in broad daylight, flitting here and there just above the rooftops of the town and one sighting reported that he landed on the left shoulder of Mavis Toth of a Monday afternoon the first week of summer vacation, and perched there, yammering into her ear as she walked from her house out by the lake all the way to the bank. Something was going on, we were sure of it, but what it was no one had the slightest idea. Or I should say, no adults had a clue. The children of Lepara, on the other hand, took to whispering, gathering in groups and talking excitedly until a grown-up drew near. Even usual truants of the school year, like the master of spitballs, Alfred Lessert, began spending whole days at the school under the pretense of doing math problems for fun. It was the belief of some that a conspiracy was afoot. Parents slyly tried to coax their children into divulging a morsel of information, but their sons and daughters stared quizzically, either pretending not to know what their folks were getting at, or really not knowing. Miss Toth came under scrutiny as well, and instead of really answering questions, she nodded a great deal, played with the chain that held her reading glasses, and forced a laugh when nothing else would do. The intrigue surrounding the schoolhouse and the town's children remained of mild interest to the adults throughout the summer, but as always the important tasks of business and household chores took precedence and finally overwhelmed their attention, so that they did not mark the vanishing of old newspapers and cups of flour. As the first anniversary of the wind's failure to appear drew closer, we tried to pull tight the reins of our speculation as to what would happen that year. In our private minds, we all wondered whether the present state of limbo would be split by the gale again, howling through town, or if the time would pass without incident and give further proof that the dreaming weirdness had run its course for good, never to return. Friday morning of the second to last week in August, I went to the mailbox and found only an odd message with no envelope. It was a piece of folded paper, colored green and cut into the shape of a parrot feather. I opened it and read, Colonel Pudding invites you to the Festival of the Dreaming Wind. The date given for the event was the very next day, the time, sundown, and the location, the town square. It went on to announce, bring only your dreams. I smiled for the first time since the end of the previous summer, and I was so out of practice that the muscles of my face ached slightly. As old and slow as I was, I ran up the path calling to Lida. 
When she saw the invitation, she actually laughed and clapped her hands. Late the next afternoon, just before twilight, we left the house and walked to the town square. It was a beautiful evening, pink, orange, and purple in the west where the sun was half below the horizon. The sky above was dark blue, and already the stars were beginning to show themselves. A slight breeze blew, enough to keep the gnats and mosquitoes at home. We held hands and walked in silence. As we passed along, we saw our neighbors leaving their houses and heading in the direction of the event. The town square had been transformed with streamers of gold paper draped upon the picket fences and snaked around the light posts. In the southern corner, rows of folding chairs had been set up facing a slightly raised makeshift stage that was formed from the wooden pallets the town's brickmakers stacked their wares upon. Two tall poles on either side supported a patchwork curtain comprised of a number of old comforters safety pinned together. Six lit torches had been set up around the performance area, casting a soft glow that became increasingly magical as the sky darkened. Constable Garrett, big cigar in the corner of his mouth, dressed in a colorful muumuu and wearing a bow in his hair, played the usher, making us form a line a short distance from the seating. We complimented him on his outfit, telling him how lovely he looked, and he nodded wearily, as usual, and answered, What did you expect? All around the festival area, Lepar's children moved busily, with purpose, and in the middle of this bustle of activity stood Miss Toth, her skin blue, her hair a wig of rubber snakes, whispering directions and leaning down to put her ear closer to the ideas and questions of her students. Suddenly, all was quiet and still, but for the flickering of the torch flames. "'Please have your tickets ready,' said Garrett, and he held his hand up and waved us on. Before taking our seats, we were directed to three long tables upon which lay painted papier-mâché masks of animal heads, household items, seashells, and anything else you could possibly imagine. They had, attached to either side, long strands of thick wire with half-loops at the ends, so that you could put on the disguise like a pair of glasses. Mixed in amidst the masks were newspaper hats, and at the end of each table was a stack of fans made of sticks with a round piece of cardboard attached. I settled on a mask that made my head a can of beans, and my wife took on the visage of a barnyard chick. Mildred Johnson's face became a bear paw, her husband's a bright yellow sun. Beck Harbeth chose a dog mask, and Mayor James Mearse III turned away from the table a green monkey. Once everyone was something else, we took our fans and went to sit before the stage. The show started promptly. Miss Toth appeared from behind the curtain, carrying a hat rack, which she set down next to her. She welcomed us all and thanked us for coming, announced the creator and founder of the Festival of the Dreaming Wind, and walked off the stage. A moment later, from over our heads, there came the sound of flapping wings, and Colonel Pudding landed on top of the hat rack. He screeched three times, lifted his wings, bobbed his head twice, and said, Mama, the tale of the dreaming wind, once upon a time, before flying away. Jessica Johnson ran out from behind the curtain, whisked the perch off the stage, and the play began. The story told by the drama was about a great wizard who lived, with his wife and daughter, in a castle way up north in the mountains. He was a good wizard, practicing only white magic, and for anyone who made the arduous journey to see him, he would grant a wish as long as it was meant for someone else. The only two wishes he would not grant were those of riches or power. A chorus of younger children sang songs that filled us in on the details of life upon the mountain. White confetti blew across the stage, 
becoming snow, to mark the passage of time. Then the wizard's wife, whom he loved very much, caught a chill that progressed into pneumonia. It soon became clear that she was dying, and no matter what spells of enchantment he tried to work, nothing could cure her. When finally she died, he was deeply saddened, as was his daughter. He began to realize that there were things in the world his magic couldn't control, and he became very protective of his daughter, fearing she would succumb to the same fate as her mother. He had promised his wife that he would always love the girl and keep her safe. This responsibility grew in his mind to overshadow everything, and the least little cut to her finger or scraped knee caused him great anguish. Time passed, and the girl grew older and developed a mind of her own. She wanted to go down the mountain and visit with other people. The wizard knew that there were all manner of dangers waiting for her out in the world. Before she got to the age where he knew he could no longer stop her from leaving, he cast a spell on her that put her into a profound sleep. To protect her, he encased her in a large seed pod with a window so that he could see her face when he needed to. There she slept, her age unchanging, and he finally felt some relief. He noticed at the end of the first year of her protective sleep that she must be dreaming, because he could see through the window the figures and forms of her dreams swirling around her inside the seed. It became clear to him that if he didn't find some way to siphon out the dreams, they would eventually fill the seed to bursting. So, using his magic, he cast a spell that added a spigot to the top of the structure. Once a year, when summer led into fall, he'd climb a stepladder and release her pent-up dreams. They sprayed forth from within like a geyser, gathering themselves up into a kind of cloud that, when fully formed, rushed out of the castle window. The mountain winds caught her dreams and drove them south, where their vitality affected everything they touched. As the story unfolded on the stage before me, I was amazed at the quality of the production and how ingenious the props were. The seed pod that contained the wizard's daughter was a large luggage bag covered with glitter and a window cut to reveal the girl's face. To show her dreams swirling within, they must have cut from colored paper small figures of different animals and people and things and attached them to thin sticks that the daughter, played wonderfully by the beautiful Peggy Frouche, controlled with her hands, hidden from sight, and made sail gracefully before her closed eyes. When the dreams were released by the turning of the spigot, they took the form of younger children, donned in costumes, who whirled madly around the stage and then gathered together before blowing south. And what was even more amazing was that the errant Alfred Lesser, with his freckles and shock of red hair, played the troubled wizard with a pathos that transcended drama and stepped neatly into reality. While I sat there noting the remainder of the play, wherein a youth comes to the far north to beg for a wish to be granted, discovers the girl and frees her, does battle with her father, who, just before killing the lad with a deadly spell, succumbs to his daughter's pleas and spares him, letting the young couple flee down the mountain toward freedom. I was preoccupied, seeing my own years in Lepara unfold on a wooden pallet stage in my mind. Before I knew it, the action transpiring in front of me had rushed on, and the wizard was delivering his final soliloquy, a blessing for the couple, amid a blizzard of falling snow. Out there in the world, my dear, he said, calling after his daughter and scanning the crowd to look into each set of our eyes. The wind will blow both beautiful and bitter and there's no telling which it will be each time the boughs bend and the leaves rustle. There is no certainty, but that there is no certainty. Hold tight to each other and don't be afraid, for sometimes, in the darkest night, that wind may even bring you dreams. 
At the end of the production, the players bowed to thundering applause. We were then instructed to hold high our fans and to wave them as hard as we could. Everyone in the audience and on stage paddled the air with all they had, creating 200 small gusts of wind, which joined together to form a great gale that gave comfort and left no one unchanged. Afterward, some danced the kambaroo to the sound of Constable Garrett's harmonica, while the children played hide-and-seek in the dark. We all drank punch and talked and laughed late into the night until the torches burned out. On our walk home, by the light of the stars, Lida turned to me and divulged how when she and some of the other neighbors were clearing out Grandmother Young's house so that I could be sold to a new couple moving into town, she discovered beneath the bed a set of loose papers that held the plans for the festival and the outline of the play. By then the colonel was putting the scheme she'd taught him into action, and so I kept it a secret from everyone as not to ruin the surprise, she said. I told her I was glad she did, just as we passed the bench in the shadow of the strange old oak that gave birth to blue bats, and we caught sight of Alfred Lesser and Peggy Frew sharing a kiss. Some things never change, I whispered. Wearily, we crawled into bed that night, and I lay for a long time with my eyes closed, listening to Lida's steady breathing and the sound of a breeze sifting through the screen of our open window. My thoughts, at first, were filled with the sights and sounds of the festival, the glow of torches, the masks, the laughter. But these eventually gave way to the sole image of that old wizard, alone on his mountain in the far north. Through the falling snow, I noticed his beard and recognized his wrinkled face. Murmuring some incantation, he lifted his wand. Then he nodded once, granting me my wish, and I realized I must be dreaming. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Carl Sandburg wrote, Strange things blow in through my window on the wings of the night wind, and I don't worry about my destiny.'